So last week we finished our study of the church, and this week is another of our lessons of hymnology. But some of what we talked about last week uh, is relevant for today because one of the questions I answered was about the use of music in the church. I'm going to ask you the question I asked you last week that you didn't know the answer to, and I'm going to hope that you remember it since last week. What is the purpose of music in the church? In one word. Teach. Teach. Teaching. Colossians 3.16. Okay. No. (laughs) Now that I have talked about that at least three times in the last year and a half, I hope that some of you will remember it, but... So, music in the church is for teaching. Uh, We see that in Colossians 3.16. I'm going to read from the preface of a hymnal that was published in 1759. Uh, The author says, All I would humbly wish is that Jesus of Nazareth, the mighty God, the friend of sinners, would be pleased to make these hymns in some measure instrumental in setting forth his glory, propagating and enforcing the truths of his gospel, cheering the hearts of his people, and exalting his inestimable righteousness, upon which alone the unworthy author desires to risk the whole of his salvation. He doesn't use the word teaching there, but it's clearly teaching that he's thinking about Uh, setting forth the glory of God and explaining the truths of the gospel so that people can understand them and be encouraged by them. He desired that his hymnal would be used to teach in the church. Uh, That author was named Joseph Hart, uh, someone a couple of months ago expressed a desire to learn something about Joseph Hart, so I moved him up in my list of hymn writers to talk about. So today I'm going to tell you a little bit about his life. Hart was born in London. The date of his birth is not known, but it was probably in 1712. So if you think of what was going on in Christian history about that time, um, you see this puts... uh, him living at the time of the evangelical revival of the 18th century. He's just a few years younger than the Wesley brothers and just a little bit older than George Whitfield. Isaac Watts was still living at this time, though their paths never crossed. We sang this morning John Wesley's translation from Count Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf also is living about this time. Almost nothing is known about Joseph Hart's parents. We know they must have been fairly well off. They gave their son a good education. He became a classical scholar. He also knew Hebrew and Greek. And for some time, he worked as a language teacher. He also translated and edited some poems from I think from Greek, if I remember correctly. The other thing we know about his parents is that they were Christians. A preacher who knew the 
Hart's parents says that Joseph Hart was the son of many prayers. They took him to church, they prayed for him, they taught him about the scriptures. So he grew up in a home that knew the gospel, where he learned about Christ, but he never fully surrendered to that gospel. He seems to have basically accepted it intellectually, but never really surrendered to it in his own life. From the time he was about 20 years old, he entered a period of spiritual struggle. He tried to live righteously. He says, I endeavored to reconcile myself again to God. If you try to do that, of course, you are going to fail. You cannot reconcile yourself to God. So he continually uh, fell back into sin. Spent much of his time drinking and partying. Uh, he describes an uneasy, an uneasy, restless round of sinning and repenting, working and dreading for seven years. <clears throat> About the end of that time, he decided that uh, um, there was no way that he could save himself. He saw himself as a monstrous sinner. Uh, He realized that he really wasn't someone who ought to call himself a Christian. He began to realize that salvation is a gift from God. And he started to lay hold on the gospel by faith. But he still wasn't quite ready to come to Christ on Christ's own terms. About this time, in 1741, he published his first work, a book on the unreasonableness of religion. That title probably doesn't mean what you think it means. Uh, By saying that religion is unreasonable, he means that it's something that has to be revealed to us, not something that we can figure out uh, by our own thinking abilities. This was a work of theological controversy against the teaching of John Wesley. Much of this book is correct in its doctrine. Wesley had taught some things that needed to be addressed. But you read this book of hearts and see that he is really not trusting in Christ for himself. Uh, He finds the source of religion really in himself rather than in the word of God. So though he understands much of the truth, he's not quite ready to uh, embrace it for himself. He called himself a a believer in Christ, uh, thought of himself as one of God's elect, but he was trusting in mere doctrine, as he later said, rather than in the power of God's spirit. So after this, he allowed his spiritual pride to lead him back into sin. He says, in a word, I ran such dangerous lengths, both of carnal and spiritual wickedness, that I even outwent professed infidels. He remained in rebellion for a period of nine or ten years, he says. 
Not only did he sin himself, but he influenced others to sin by his own example, perhaps also by some of his writings. During none of this time did he deny the truth of the Bible or the gospel. About 1750, he's toward the end of his 30s at this time, he says, I began by degrees to reform a little and to live in a more sober and orderly manner. He says that he accepted the gospel and that he began to live morally And uh, once he changed his life a little bit, he assumed himself to be in the right way to the favor of God. Still thinking, though he knew about the death of Christ, thinking that it was by his own righteousness that he would come to salvation. There's still no real faith in Christ. He had what he later described as a lukewarm, insipid kind of religion. His heart was not changed He was still proud of his own righteousness. He refused to believe that Christ's death was necessary for his salvation. He says that he even told God so. He told God that he wouldn't believe that he needed the death of Christ. He exclaims about this time, Oh, the horrible depth of man's fall and the desperate wickedness of the human heart. But the Lord was working in Joseph Hart's life. In his early 40s, he became troubled over his lack of personal religion. So he began to pray for revelation from God. He was hoping that somehow God would reveal himself directly to him. But he was directed in his spirit to the revelation that God has already given, the revelation of a crucified Savior. So he was able to continue for some time, trusting in the gospel, but not quite at peace in his own spirit, alternating between hope and despair, being afraid to go to sleep, lest he might awake in hell, yet all the time knowing that Christ was the only way of salvation. He frequently attended religious meetings. He especially attended the two places where George Whitfield preached, the tabernacle at Moorfields, where apparently Hart's parents were regular attenders, and also the chapel in Tottenham Court Road. He sometimes obtained comfort from hearing preaching of Whitfield and others, but still felt that he would be condemned for his sin. By this point, he realized he was not a righteous person. The story of his conversion is best told in his own words. In this sad state, I went moping about, having some little hope at the bottom under all, which now and then would glimmer, but was soon overwhelmed again with clouds of horror, till Whit Sunday, 1757, when I happened to go in the afternoon to the Moravian Chapel in Fetter Lane, where I had been several times before. The minister preached on these words, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, 
I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Revelation 3.10 I was hardly got home when I felt myself melting away into a strange softness of affection which made me fling myself on my knees before God. My horrors were immediately dispelled and such light and comfort flowed into my heart as no words can paint. The Lord, by his spirit of love, came, not in a visionary manner into my brain, but with such divine power and energy into my soul that I was lost in blissful amazement. I cried out, What, me, Lord? His spirit answered in me, Yes, thee. I objected, But I have been so unspeakably vile and wicked. The answer was, I pardon thee fully and freely. Thy goodness cannot profit thee, nor shall thy wickedness damn thee. I undertake to work all thy works in thee and for thee, and to bring thee safe through all. I threw my soul willingly into my Savior's hands, only begging that I might, if he was graciously pleased to permit it, be of some service to his church and people. My horrors, which were then banished, have never since returned." So Hart finally came to accept Christ as his Savior. He had tried to save himself on his own. He had tried to find salvation based on some kind of experience from the Lord. But that experience never came until he was willing to submit himself to God's way of salvation to come in faith to Christ. His troubles did not end once he was converted. He says, Disorder and darkness of soul, afflictions and temptations of various kinds and other hindrances still came to uh, give him distress. He still knew himself to be a sinner, but from that day in 1757, he never lost his confidence in Christ. Whatever temptations and doubts he faced, he always was able to go back to the gospel and Christ as his Savior. He came to enjoy the practice of prayer. He finally fully understood the value of Christ's death for him. And he wrote, Jesus Christ and he crucified... Not sure about the pronoun there, is now the only thing I desire to know. In that incarnate mystery are contained all the rich treasures of divine wisdom. This is the mark towards which I am still pressing forward. This is the cup of salvation of which I wish to drink deeper and deeper. This is the grace in which I long to grow. This is my religion and the whole of my religion. The blood, the blood is the life. And all duties, means, ordinances, etc. are to me unprofitable nothings, except they are enriched with the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Redeemer, applied to the soul by his Spirit, is the one thing needful. Moral uprightness is good for nothing. Sound doctrine is not enough. Only the power of the Spirit received by faith. Joseph Hart began writing hymns immediately upon his conversion. 
The first edition of his hymns was published two years later in 1759. In the first dozen years, his book of hymns went through seven editions, and as one of his biographers comments, editions innumerable since then. It was the publication of his hymns that brought him to the attention of the church, and he was asked very soon afterwards to preach for the first time. The next year, 1760, his friends obtained a 17th century chapel in Jewin Street, London, that had gone into disuse, so it was available, and it was purchased, and a congregation gathered there with Joseph Hart as their pastor. That is where he spent the rest of his ministry. As a preacher, Hart vigorously defended the doctrines of Orthodox Christianity, but he objected to partisanship in religion, to the quarreling about non-essential opinions that brought division among Christians. A friend said that he labored hard for the conversion of souls. Only one of his sermons was preserved, a sermon he preached at his last Christmas called The King of the Jews, which was published after his death. He also uh, continued writing hymns and expanded his hymnal twice. He, in addition to that, uh, made use of letters, correspondence with various people to encourage Christians in the truth. Uh, Only one of his letters has survived, one in which he uh, encourages a nephew in his own personal faith. Uh, He did have an extensive correspondence with a fellow pastor called Andrew Kinsman, who commented, how sweetly did he write of Jesus and his great salvation. Hart's ministry was not a long one. He lived only eight years after he commenced his pastorate. He was sick for much of that time, but he did not allow ill health to slow him down. His brother-in-law, John Hughes, said, He was like the laborious ox that dies with his yoke on his neck. So did he with the yoke of Christ on his neck. Neither would he suffer it to be taken off. For you are witnesses that he preached Christ to you with the arrows of death sticking in him. Hart's last recorded words were, I know myself to be a child of God and an heir of glory. Judas was lost that the scripture might be fulfilled. But the scripture would not be fulfilled if I should not be saved. He died in London on the 24th of May, 1768. I have visited his grave in Bunhill Fields, one of the most famous cemeteries in the world. It is said that 20,000 people attended his funeral. Probably that's an exaggeration, but certainly it was a large crowd and a testament to how useful his ministry was even in just a few years. He was survived by his widow, Mary Hughes, who lived until 1790, and five of their six children. 
his church remained for another 80 years or so. It lasted into the 1840s. And up until the end of that congregation's life, the church was still called Mr. Hart's Chapel, though, of course, no one was left who knew Mr. Hart. He wrote 226 hymns and poems, plus seven single stanza doxologies. They have been variously estimated. The hymnologist Eric Routley insists that Joseph Hart was not a poet. Routley says, with the best will in the world, we can find no single line of poetic insight in these works. Other writers are more favorable. Elsie Houghton said, Hart had a true poetic gift, but he rarely allowed himself to use poetic language. His style is unequaled for power and terseness of expression. He dwells much on the sufferings and vicarious sacrifice of Christ and on his priestly office, presenting him as the one who is able to save to the uttermost all that come to God by him. He handles most aspects of Christian truth as an able minister of Christ, gifted with poetic talent. John Julian wrote, Many of the hymns are of merit and are marked by great earnestness and passionate love of the Redeemer. One of Hart's successors in ministry says this about his hymn book, Herein the doctrines of the gospel are illustrated so practically, the precepts of the word enforced so evangelically, and their effects stated so experimentally, that with propriety it may be styled a treasury of doctrinal, practical, and experimental divinity. His brother-in-law said, Hart's plain, simple, but experimental and comfortable hymns have been a means of refreshing and strengthening the souls of many. Perhaps the best testament to the use of his hymns is that his hymnal was continually reprinted and republished well into the 19th century, uh, many years after his death. His hymns speak much of the grace of God in salvation, they speak much of the experience of the individual Christian, of biblical stories. The one that he meditates on most frequently is the suffering of Christ in Gethsemane. He also wrote hymns for use at specific events, such as baptisms and funerals, um, Christmas, Easter, the ascension of Christ, and other uh, days in the church calendar. He was criticized by some of his fellow believers for celebrating those holidays, which are not commanded in Scripture. But in response, all he did was write a hymn based on uh, the text where Paul talks about some people honoring a day and other people not honoring the day. He didn't insist that they had to be observed, but felt that they could be useful for Christians. I have printed some examples of his work for you to read, if you would like to do so. Um, if you would like a digital copy of these, I can send them by email. Um, these are just uh, several examples of what Hart wrote, um, taken out of his hymnal. 
Only two of his works are in our hymnal. One of them is uh, the closing hymn that we have at number 738 of the hymnal. Um, It's printed in our hymnal as two stanzas, but uh, it's actually originally one stanza, the seventh and last stanza of a hymn that begins, No Prophet Nor Dreamer of Dreams. It's from Deuteronomy 13. it's, uh, the message of the hymn is that uh, we should not accept the teaching of any prophet except one who comes with the gospel of Christ. And the final stanza, which is slightly altered in our hymnal, is, This God is the God we adore, our faithful, unchangeable friend, whose love is as large as his power and neither knows measure nor end. Tis Jesus, the first and the last, whose spirit shall guide us safe home. We'll praise him for all that is past and trust him for all that's to come. The rest of this hymn is one that would be a little difficult to sing. The language is somewhat awkward. It's not not one of those that uh, is more poetic. Um, I think Routley was wrong in saying there's no poetry in Hart's hymns, but he was right in saying that some of them really are not best to sing. But the final part of the hymn, as we have in our hymnal, is one that would be hard to do without. The other uh, is the one that we will sing to close today, number 301. Um, We have five stanzas, the original seven stanzas, but we'll just sing it as it is printed in our hymnal. So we will go to that now, number 301. And we'll sing all the stanzas. Sorry, someone's put the soft pedal on. He gives you, this He gives. 
its glimmering beam. Tis the Spirit's glimmering beam. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till your better, Not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. Sinners Jesus came to call. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude, none but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good, can do helpless sinners good. So now every time you sing that, you can remember the man who wrote it, who grew up as a child knowing the truths that are communicated in that text, but spent 25 years as an adult before he finally came to rest in them for himself. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the work you did in this brother's life uh, back in 1757, how he came to Christ. We thank you that he can still minister the gospel to us today. We pray that you would help us to lay hold on these truths and keep them in our hearts and tell them to other people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.